Now, before we actually get into the scriptural text for our study of that seventh and final Revelation church letter, which was written to the church of the Laodiceans, I want to continue our rather brief, kind of sketchy look at some of the philosophies and movements which have arisen during the past two and a half centuries. These ungodly developments have built upon one another and they have worked in conjunction with one another to bring us into the Laodicean stage of church history in which we very sadly and yet prophetically, you know, God said this would happen, so it's not that sad because God is fulfilling his plan, but uh, that is the, the way that we, the stage that we are living in today. It has characterized much of the 20th century the lukewarm apostate stage of church history. Now, because of the combined influences of the philosophies of Kant, K-A-N-T, Kant, Hegel, Schleiermacher, and another man I didn't talk about last week named Ritchell, who lived from 1822 to 1889, who agreed with Schleiermacher that that religious belief is grounded in what? Do you remember what Schleiermacher taught? That... Right, experience. He believed that religious belief is grounded in one's experience. And this man, Ritchell, also emphasized the love of God. You know, you hear that a lot in churches today, the love of God. God is love. But he, and that's true, God is love. But he emphasized it to the degree that he suppressed God's holiness and God's justice and God's divine wrath. And he also denied the doctrines of original sin and hell. And that is true in many churches today. They will preach the love of God, but you will never hear anything about hell or sin or the justice of God or the wrath of God. And because also of the ungodly teachings of Karl Marx and communism and Charles Darwin and evolutionism, and because of the mass production of material goods during the Industrial Revolution, and because of man's increasing faith in science, Satan was very successful in getting much of Protestantism to go apostate. A large segment of Protestantism thought that it was necessary in light of all this scientific, philosophical, and economic, uh, these economic trends, they thought it was necessary to reinterpret the gospel so that it would fit in better with the modern world. So liberal Protestantism developed in the latter part of the 1800s, and it reached its peak in the first several decades of this 20th century. won't be able to say that much longer, will will we? Can you imagine saying 21st century? (laughs) A spirit of open-mindedness to all of these new modes of thought characterized liberal Protestantism. Its followers stressed the uh, stressed tolerance. That's a word we hear a lot today, isn't it? They stressed tolerance toward all other groups within Christendom. And Christendom can be a pretty broad group. And so they stressed tolerance regardless of, of doctrine. They put confidence in the scientific method as a means of discovering truth, not only with regard to the study of the material world, but with regard to the realm of, of the spiritual world and in regard to Scripture. You know, you have to be able to prove Scripture by the scientific method. They developed strong feelings of intolerance toward those who held, like we do, dogmatically to the doctrines of the Scripture because they began to be very skeptical about the possibility of anyone being able to know anything of ultimate reality in a dogmatic way. Furthermore, liberal Protestants began to look for common features between Christianity and non-Christian religions. And what does this lead into? The ecumenical movement that we see so prominent today. Liberal Protestantism placed great confidence in man and in his society, believing that both were perfectible. It also stressed the authority of individual religious experience as opposed to biblical authority. 
and it criticized the traditional beliefs of Protestantism, you know, considering many of the essential doctrines as unessential to Christianity. For example, well, it's not essential to believe in the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ or to believe in his deity. Liberalism became saturated with social idealism, concluding that the church is responsible for correcting the wrongs of society and for bringing society, society into conformity with the ideal of the kingdom of God on earth. Is that the church's commission, the great commission to bring society into conformity with the kingdom of God? No, the, the Great Commission is to go out into the world and preach the gospel and see individuals come out of the world and into the kingdom of light. But we will never be able to change society, to change the whole world. That wasn't the, the job that the church was given. The Lord even said that there would be few who would find the narrow way. Now, the doctrine of liberal Protestantism Protestantism, so stressed the imminence, remember that word that you had on your homework page? It so stressed the imminence of God, that God is in everything, that it practically assumed a unity of God and the world, eliminating, you see, the clear distinction between the infinite, perfect God and the finite corrupt world. If God is in everything, then they lost that distinction between the corrupt world and the incorrupt, perfect, infinite God. Liberal Protestantism rejected also belief in miracles because, you see, they saw no distinction between the supernatural and the natural. Since God is in all of nature, he doesn't supernaturally intervene in the world. He doesn't supernaturally intervene because he's already in everything. And he works simply through natural processes. So they eliminate miracles with this kind of talk. Their emphasis upon God's imminence implied that all men, you see, again, are born with divinity within them. God's in everything. So all men are born with divinity, with God within them. And therefore, there was no fall of man or inherited guilt or sin. Man is essentially good because man is born, they say, with God in him already. Their belief in God's imminence also affected their doctrine of the church. Liberal Protestantism denied the sharp distinction between the church and the world. After all, again, God is in Everything. So he's in the church and he's in the world, so there's no real distinction. These liberal theologians rejected the concept of eternal punishment, and they stressed that the important thing is to be fulfilled in this life rather than to concern oneself about the afterlife. They sound a lot like the Sadducees, don't they, in that regard? Now, because of their notion that God is in everything, they concluded also that he can be known in every experience. If this is confusing to you, it's confusing to me. Don't worry about even learning it. <laughs> it's confusing because it's not true. God's not the author of confusion. When something is confusing, that's because that's a, a, a key to knowing that it isn't true. Liberal Protestantism concluded that Jesus Christ was only a man, and therefore he was subject to error. However, as a man, they say, he raised humanity to the highest level by allowing God to be supremely imminent in him. They don't teach the Christ of the gospel accounts, the Christ that we studied for eight years in this Bible study. They don't teach the Christ who is God, the God who became man and died as man's sin substitute and is man's redeemer. Instead, they teach that, that Christ is just a great teacher of morals and ethics who gave mankind the greatest example of how man can allow God, who's already in him from birth, to become supremely imminent in him. Furthermore, this idea of imminence 
ruled out the concept of God the Holy Spirit entering a person's life in an instantaneous moment of salvation. They concluded instead that because every person is born already with God in him, you know, born with God in him at his birth, then conversion or salvation is merely a matter of a person being educated to act like God, to act like Christ, who was our human example. Also, because God is imminent in everybody, the final court of appeal for faith and practice is the individual's own conscience and his own reason and his own tuition. Nothing is authoritative for anybody unless it is meaningful to him personally. This means, in effect, that every person is his own ultimate authority. Kind of sounds like the end of the book of... uh the end of the book of Judges. There are no absolutes of faith and conduct to which every man is held responsible. Now, in the years immediately preceding, the years right before World War I, the amazing accomplishments of science and the theory of evolutionary progress and this liberal Protestantism, their ideas about the perfectibility of man and his society and of God working imminently in the world, in all men and in all nature, all of this together brought about an air of an atmosphere, that kind of air, of real optimism. Many people began to seriously believe that the transformation of society was possible. So men began to preach the message of social change. And eventually, what did their message become known as? Who knows? The social gospel. You've all heard the social gospel. That's what it became known as. Liberal Protestant proponents of the social gospel proclaimed that the church should be concerned with the salvation of society, you know, with reforming society, and not with the salvation of individuals. The church, they said, should be spending its time and its money and its effort in bringing the kingdom of God on earth, rather than teaching about some future literal theocratic kingdom which will only be established by the direct intervention of who? the Lord Jesus Christ. Exactly. Again, now, because of their stress on God's imminence, if you never knew that word before, you're certainly going to know it now, right? Because of their stress on his imminence, those who proclaimed the social gospel saw God as the father of all men. You know, all men are brothers, regardless of what they believe in. All men are brothers because God is in everybody. And regardless of who they worship, They said, the social gospel taught, that men can experience God just as much in a Shinto shrine or in a Muslim mosque as they can in a Christian church. So the church, according to the social gospel, was to concentrate on saving society and not to concern herself with saving people out of the world. Do you know what the word church means in Greek? The Greek word, ekklesia, called out ones. That is the church's commission to call people out. But they said the exact opposite. Well, needless to say, the scope and the dreadfulness of World War I and then also World War II did very serious damage to the social gospel idea of the perfectibleness of man and his society. Liberal Protestantism's optimism for a man-created worldwide utopia suddenly didn't quite mesh with reality, with what was going on. Rather than exposing the inherent goodness of man, what did these two wars vividly demonstrate? Right, the evil, the de- total depravity of man and his corruption. So there was a need to revise the theology of the liberal Protestants. Actually, right about this time, about the time of World War I, a new theological movement did begin to arise in Western Europe. 
and it eventually spread to America, and it has dominated much of Protestant thinking even into the post-World War II era. Now, this new movement severely criticized the fallacies of liberal Protestantism. In its theological teaching, this new movement stressed the sovereignty of God. They stressed the transcendence of God. They stressed his wrath and his judgment, as well as his mercy and his love. Opposing the liberal concept of the imminence of God, these new theologians taught that God is infinitely above and supreme over the world and his creation. They also emphasized that God was, uh, Christ was not just a man, but that he is fully God and fully man. And they stressed the sinfulness of man, his depravity. And they taught that he can only be saved from his sin by a redeeming act of God. They declared that the final authority for faith and practice is not one's religious experience. They also concluded that although the church should speak out against the evils of society, yet society cannot be transformed into the kingdom of God here on earth. Well, the doctrinal statements of this new movement sound good, don't they? Is there anything I've said that you've disagreed with? So, so far, they sound wonderful, sound very good, very fundamental. In fact, they sounded so fundamental, they sounded so orthodox, that this new movement became known as the New Orthodoxy or Neo-Orthodoxy. However, the problem was that although these Neo-Orthodox theologians used Christian terms which made most of what they taught sound real fundamental, sound real orthodox, and true to the Bible. The fact is, however, that they often gave different meanings to the terms that they used to their language. And in several very crucial areas, their theology differed from biblical Christianity. For example, with regard, with regard to God's revelation to man, neo-orthodoxy states that the final authority for faith and practice is not the Bible. That's a big problem. It actually, neo-orthodoxy actually teaches that God never has given divine revelation through either the spoken or the written word. According to neo-orthodox theologians and believers, and believe me that we're surrounded by them, they are prominent today, uh, according to them, the final authority is the revelation of himself that God gives to an individual when he, when God, encounters that individual personally. Now, this simply means that no divine revelation is the same for all men. God may speak to one man in one way, but he, and he, he might say something totally different to another man in another way. The word of God to the individual, then, is whatever God has used to speak to that individual. You get it? So if God speaks to somebody through a particular verse in the Bible, then that verse becomes the word of God. Somebody in the night Bible study gave me a newspaper to read that came from a mainline denominational church. And they asked me to read a couple articles and to give my opinion um, on what I thought about those articles. And I, and I was reading some comments from the leaders in this particular denomination. And what they were asked directly, what do you think about the Word of God? What do you think about the deity of Christ? And, you know, on the surface reading it, it sounded really good. It sounded like they, they were very fundamental. But then I started noticing, because I had been studying about neo-orthodoxy, how they would say, yes, the word of God is the word of God to me. Little things like to me. I, I kept noticing that, and that was a little red flag going up. It became the word of God for me. And I saw that in every one of those guys that they interviewed. So I imagine they're all neo-orthodox theologians. So they say if God speaks um, through a particular verse in the Bible, then that verse becomes the word of God to that individual. However, if God never speaks to a person 
through the Bible, through any verse in the Bible or through the whole Bible, then the Bible is never the word of God to that person. So what this teaching means is that if a man wanted to learn something about God through, let's say, nature, he couldn't do so unless God spoke to him personally through some aspect of nature. So neo-orthodoxy teaches that there is no objective revelation of God in either the Bible or in creation, in nature. But the Bible itself, what does the Bible say? It says that it is the word of God regardless of who reads it. If it's the word of God, if nobody ever touched the Bible, it's still the eternal word of God. It's the word of God regardless. You know, if every man is a liar, it's still the truth. It's the word of God regardless of who reads it, regardless of who believes it, regardless of who it speaks to. And it also tells us that God has revealed his existence to us through the wonder and the beauty of his creation, regardless of who sees and who appreciates his handiwork. His, he speaks through the stars and through the beauty of the trees and nature all around us. And it's up to man to live up to that knowledge that there is a creator and to seek him and to, you know, to, to come to know him through creation and through his written word. And so he, God does definitely speak to us. These are, his, these are divine revelations that God has given to man, his creation and his, his written word. So neo-orthodoxy differs from Christianity. It teaches that the original scripture contains errors. It teaches that the biblical accounts of creation and the fall of man and the uh, final judgment that we'll be reading about in the book of Revelation. Neo-Orthodoxy teaches that all these things are merely myths or they're symbolic ways of presenting truths. They say that the fall didn't really occur as it is presented in the scripture, but that it represents every man's individual rebellion against God. Furthermore, the biblical idea of a future theocratic kingdom, which we will also be learning about in the book of Revelation, they say that that is merely a symbol, which again tells us that one day beyond history, future, they don't even say when, but one day there will be final victory over evil. So even though neo-orthodoxy opposed many of the erroneous teachings of liberal Protestantism, it also continued some very serious errors because it uses so many good-sounding terms and such good-sounding biblical language really its liberal teachings are even more they're more dangerous because they're a more deceptive tool in Satan's war against the war, word of God and uh, therefore there it's a really it's a more dangerous because it's more subtle so beware of neo orthodoxy it is prevalent i could give you names i won't do that but i could give you names of people that are neo-orthodox, and it's, it's a very subtle teaching. You have to beware. Now, as we can see then, from the time of the rise of rationalism in the 17th century, Satan had used one philosophy and one movement after another to chip away more and more at man's faith in the reliability of the Scripture, and thereby um, at his faith in a personal God. Rationalism, this is to review, rationalism proposed the idea that the world operates solely on a natural basis, apart from any divine intervention or providence. Empiricism ruled out belief in truth which comes by way of divine revelation. Deism taught about a non-caring, non-involved God. Remember they said that God... He created everything and then he stepped aside and never got involved in it again. They denied the existence of all forms of special revelation in the world. 
Kant stated that there cannot be any knowledge of God that comes through special divine revelation. Man's concept of God and any spiritual matters must come from man's own moral experience, since man can only know what his senses, his five senses, experience. Hegel raised doubts in the minds of many that the historical records of God's action in the world according to the Bible is true. You know, that he attacked the historical record of the Bible. And Schleiermacher placed the final authority for faith and practice in one's experience instead of in divine revelation. And then destructive criticism rejected the Bible as the infallible, supernatural, inerrant revelation of God to mankind. Oops. That's destructive criticism. Then commercialism took man's thoughts from God and from spiritual matters and focused them instead upon mammon, upon money and and material things. Communism taught atheism. Actually, communism taught that belief in a supreme being is actually detrimental to man. Remember what he said? It's the opiate of the people. Evolution denied the necessity of a personal God and of having a Savior. The accomplishments of science gave man the confidence that he could solve his problems without the help of God. You know, just give him enough years and enough technology and man will solve all his own problems. He'll find another planet out out there somewhere that he can go and live on and that'll solve everything. (laughs) It won't. We would just start all over again. Liberal Protestantism came very close to equating God with nature, you know, because of their teaching of the imminence of God. The social gospel stated that man could establish the kingdom of God on earth without any supernatural assistance. And neo-orthodoxy taught that there is no objective way that man can learn about God. Now, all of these movements and false philosophies, and by the way, this isn't all of them. There are more. There's pragmatism. There's um, neo-evangelicalism. There's all kinds of additional isms which have arisen, but I'm not going to give you any more at this point. All of these were used by Satan to eat away at man's belief in the word of God. And in a personal God. And unfortunately, this has had an impact on the church. Because these movements, these tools of Satan, have been very successful in bringing Christendom into the stage of apostasy in which we find ourselves today. For example, and there are many examples I could give you, but I don't have the time, but Peggy Coggan gave me this uh, newspaper clipping not too long ago. It came out, the News and Observer, in February 1998. A bunch of scholars, uh, 300 and... I forgot where I read that. 360 clergy and lay people met in Chapel Hill. I mean, this you know, we're in the Bible Belt, and if this is happening in the Bible Belt, you can imagine what's going on in the rest of the world, uh, to discuss Jesus and, you know, should they take the Bible seriously. And these, it says here they questioned, was Jesus born of a virgin? And their, their um, decision was not likely. And did he walk on water? Probably not. Just about the only thing the group could could uh, agree on was that Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist and crucified by Pontius Pilate. Um, and this was sponsored by Duke University. The title of the article is Scholars Don't Take Beliefs About Jesus as Gospel. It says you can't believe the, the Gospels because they were written by believers. So that's why you can't believe them. Um, And then this one brilliant woman, she says here, she says, I don't get hung up on questions about Jesus' divinity. I think Jesus was just saying that I can't see good tonight, today, so excuse me. Huh? Oh, that's a good idea. Thank you, dear. See, that's what happens when you're only 36 instead of 48. 
I don't get hung up on questions of divinity, she says, Valerie. Valerie Yao. Uh, I think Jesus was saying that we're all children of God. For me, that's much more important than attributing to him that he was the son of God. I mean, this is, this is what, what's going on. This is what's going on. I, I get little articles like this all the time. They nauseate me. And now you know why Jesus said he would vomit them out of his mouth. He would spew them out of his mouth. Well, I'm going to run out of time if I don't get going. Now, the good news is that because God's true church, which consists of all true overcomers, you and I, I hope, if you're an overcomer, because God's true church is still present on earth, we're not in total apostasy. Because that time will come after the church is raptured. However, we are definitely living in the seventh and the final stage of church history when most of Christendom has gone apostate. Now, this final stage of church history was prophetically forecasted by the Lord Jesus Christ, so we know we're right on target. Everything's happening just as he said it would happen. And he prophetically foretold about this through the pen of the Apostle John, by way of the letter to the church of the Laodiceans, and it's to that letter that we are now going to turn. So your Bibles are open. Let's read the letter to the church of the Laodiceans, verses 14 to 22 in Revelation chapter 3. Okay, starting at verse 14, the Lord said, And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods, and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched, and miserable, and poor, and blind, and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear. And anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest, eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Our study of the seven churches, remember, began with a look at a church which had fallen from its first love. And we end now with a study of a church which had gone so far from the condition that began, that it, the condition it started with in Ephesus, that it had completely fallen away. That's what the word apostasy means, fallen away. She had completely fallen away from Jesus Christ. She had fallen away from him in regard to her love for him. She had fallen away from him in regard to her doctrine of him and his word. She had fallen away from her duty to communicate the gospel about him to a lost and a dying world. And worst of all, she had fallen from even having a saving knowledge of him herself. You see, this is the church, if you look at verse 20, which finds the Lord Jesus Christ standing on the outside, knocking for entrance. This is the church, look at verse one, uh, 14. This is the church of the Laodiceans. First time that the Lord uses this term for the church. Every other one of those six churches, he says the church in Smyrna or the church in Ephesus or, or at Ephesus. But here he says it's the church of the Laodiceans. You see, it is not the church of the Lord. It's the church of the Laodiceans. This is the church where the people rule. Remember, that's what the word Laodicea means. Laos, people, Dicea, speak. The people rule, the people speak. This is not the church where Christ is the head and where they listen to him as he speaks. <clears throat> and 
where he rules. This is the apostate church, which Jesus says he will spew out of his mouth. Now, he doesn't say that of true believers. He would never cast away he who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. He would never cast out or spew out or vomit out a true Christian. The reason I'm saying all this is because there are many people who say that this is a true church. I am going to be, and if you want to believe that, fine, but I am going to be showing you a number of reasons why I say this is a false church. This is the only church of those seven to which the Lord Jesus Christ had not one single word of approval to say. This, to me, speaks of the unsaved church of the end times, the church which listened to all of these combined lies of Satan, and, you know, all these false philosophies that we've been talking about. This is the church that absorbed these things into its thinking. Deism and liberal Protestantism and neo-Orthodoxy, and they tried to compromise with evolutionism and destructive criticism and commercialism and materialism. And in doing so, she went apostate. This is the false church, which along with the unsaved members from the three previous church churches, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia, remember those last four are the ones that will continue until the end. So this church, Laodicea, along with the unsaved from each of those three previous churches will continue to exist until after the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ has been raptured. In the tribulation period, this false church will then blossom. She will burst into full bloom apostasy as she joins hands with every other false religion and cult on the face of the earth. And she becomes Satan's one world ecumenical religious masterpiece, which even now is in the makings and is only being hindered by the true church. Now, in the remainder of our lesson time this morning, we're going to consider the known details about the city of Laodicea, and then as we've been doing in each of our previous church letters, we're going to discuss what we know about the church that existed there, and then this morning we're only going to have time to talk about, I hope we'll have time to talk about the description of Christ, that you know, the salutation description. Next week, we'll finish up our year's study, Lord willing, by looking at the declaration from Christ, and that'll be verses um, 15 to 22. So let's look at the details we know about the city. Laodicea was located in the far southeastern corner of this horseshoe shape which the seven cities of Revelation 2 and 3 have formed. It's the last one over here in this pattern. And it was located about 40 miles directly southeast of Philadelphia, near the great limestone cliffs in the Lycus River Valley. Laodicea was the capital city of Greater Phrygia. It was only about 10 miles from Colossae, you know, the epistle to the Colossians, about 10 miles from Colossae, and it was merely right across the river, the Lycus River, from Hierapolis. Both Laodicea and Hierapolis are cities which are mentioned in the Apostle Paul's letter to the saints of Colossae. He mentions these cities in the epistle to the Colossians. The city was originally founded by a man by the name of Antiochus II in about the year 260 B.C. And by the way, a couple weeks ago I said something about Philadelphia being the youngest church and that it was founded in 150 B.C. That was a mistake. I didn't mean the church was founded in 150 B.C. The city was founded. So if you go back to your notes, correct that it should be the city was founded in 150 B.C. The church wasn't even founded in 150 B.C. It didn't come into being until the day of Pentecost. So Libby, thank you for bringing that to my attention. Anyway, Antiochus II, and I think this is so interesting, this just shows the providence of God in these names so perfectly, how the names give us church history. Antiochus II named the city after his queen, after his wife, and what do you think her name was? Laodicea, or Laodice, or whatever, however it was pronounced, and he later divorced her. (laughs) 
<laughs> but he did name the city for her. And it's very interesting to me that the city which housed the church, which represents the liberal apostate church, has a name which literally means the people speak or the people rule. Because no other name could more aptly set forth the condition of the humanistic nature of Christendom today. And yet we find it was named for a woman. Well, maybe that is appropriate. <laughs> False church as a woman. To Rome. Primarily, the city of Laodicea was known throughout the Roman Empire for three major reasons. First of all, because it stood on the junction of several important trade routes. And because it was located so near to the hot springs of Hierapolis, that's what Hierapolis was known for, hot springs and um, spas, you know, people would go there and, and soak in the hot water and, and it would make them feel younger and better and all that sort of thing. Well, Laodicea, remember, was just right across the Lycus River from Hierapolis, and so this made that whole area very attractive. It was like a resort area. It was also a retirement center for wealthy people. It reminds me kind of of Pinehurst, except we don't have hot springs, we've got golf courses. So it was a, a resort area, and um, this made Laodicea because all these wealthy people would come to this area, it made Laodicea become a very great and prosperous banking center. I have some of these people pictured here for you. Laodicean citizens boasted of their wealth to the extent that when the entire city was destroyed in an earth by an earthquake in 62 AD, they refused to receive any help from the Roman Empire. They declared proudly that they could rebuild their whole city just by digging into their own pockets, and that's exactly what they did. So Laodicea was a very proud, self-sufficient city, which placed its trust in its material wealth. And once again, it's very interesting to realize how much the church, which was established in this city, took on the characteristics of the city. Because the Lord Jesus com condemned this church for relying in its riches instead of relying in his righteousness. Now the second major thing for which Laodicea was well known, and another reason for her great prosperity, was that it produced a rare and unique, glossy, fine, raven, black wool which came from a particular type of black sheep, which was raised in Laodicea. The black wool was considered very fashionable. And therefore, Laodicea, much like Thyatira, remember we said Thyatira was fashionable for its purple, Geneva, you have the purple today, for its purple dye, the uh, Laodicea, uh, What's her name? Lydia, that Lydia sold. And it reminded me also of Sardis, because Sardis was known for being able to dye wool and make it different colors. But here now we find that Laodicea was known as a fashion center because it could produce, or it did produce, this beautiful, natural black wool. Now, black is the opposite of white, and it is in the clean white robes of Christ's righteousness that we need to be clothed in order to truly, truly be saved. And that's why, if you look at verse 18, this church was counseled by the Lord to purchase white raiment. It was like saying, forget your black raiment. You need to buy white raiment. We'll talk about the word buy next week. That thou mayest be clothed. So we could say that Laodicea is the black sheep of the seven churches. Do you appreciate my humor there? And she was proud of it. She was proud of being the black sheep. Well, then thirdly, the city was located, uh, was known for its famous Phrygian eye powder. Now, this isn't eyeshadow. This is an eye powder called solarium, which came in a tablet form, and when it was crushed and mixed with water, it, made, it produced a medicinal eye salve, which had become very famous in the Roman world. I don't know what it did 
in particular, if it helped people to see better or, or if it was like Visine or something. I'm, I'm not really sure. I couldn't find that information. But they were known for this solarium, this eye salve. Also, Laodicea housed a medicinal school for ophthalmologists, and of course they are eye doctors, and this school, this medicinal school, was located in their temple to Asclepius. Remember him? The, the wicked god of medicine who had as his symbol a serpent. Again, it's very interesting to notice the connection between the city's manufacture of this famous eye salve and the Lord's words to the church located in Laodicea. Look at verse 17. He accused her of being blind. And he advised her in verse 18 to anoint her eyes with eye salve that she mayest see. So you see how he's connecting up things that are true about the city with what the church needs. She thought she could see, but he was saying, no, you are spiritually blind. You need divine eye salve. Now, like most other cities of Asia Minor, which existed under Imperial Rome, Laodicea was very pleasure-oriented, probably even more so because of nearby Hierapolis. And she was very materialistic-minded. In fact, the city had three theaters for entertainment, and one of these was just huge, a coliseum which could seat 30,000 people. You know how big that is? My kids go to Bob Jones, and they have an auditorium there that seats 7,000, and I think it's absolutely tremendous. But I can't imagine something, well, a football field, I guess, a stadium that would go all the way around, that could seat 30,000 people. Now, the ruins of this Colosseum can still be seen if you were to go to Laodicea today. By the way, there is no city of Laodicea today. There are merely the ruins of the ancient city, and there's a nearby quarry where um, rocks are taken to build material, to build houses for a nearby city called Denizli. But there is no Laodicea in existence today. But one of the sites that a tourist could see if they were taken to the ancient ruins of Laodicea would be an aqueduct system. An ancient aqueduct system which they had built in ancient times in order to bring water across the Lycus Valley and into the city by an inverted siphon of stone pipes. Because Laodicea was located so far inland, she either had to pipe cold water from Colossae, which was 10 miles away, or she had to pipe in hot water from the hot springs of Hierapolis. But either way, by the time the water arrived in Laodicea through this aqueduct system, which you can see if you go there today, their drinking water was lukewarm. You got it. You guessed it. And so for that, you can see the whole, just 15 through 16, I think he talks over and over again about being neither hot nor cold, being lukewarm, and how nauseating it is. I like my coffee hot, hot, and I like my Coca-Cola cold, cold, but boy, you give me a lukewarm drink, and what do you want to do with it? You want to just spew it out of your mouth. All right, the details about the church. We do not know who founded the church, although Christian tradition claims that it was Epaphras of Colossae, which is interesting speculation. We do know that the Apostle Paul, as I had said earlier, knew about the church in Laodicea because he mentioned it in his epistle to the Colossians. In fact, he mentioned that he wanted his letter, his epistle to the Colossians, to be taken those 10 miles over to the church at Laodicea and to be read by the church at Laodicea. Well, actually, he says the church of the Laodiceans as well. He wanted them to read. I thought that was interesting how precise God's word is. Jesus Christ called it the church of the Laodiceans. And then when I was reading Colossians, I noticed Paul said the church of the Laodiceans. One little change in his word would have meant something, you know, contrary. But no, they're consistent. 
Well, Paul knew some of the people of this church because he mentions them in Colossians 2.1 and in Colossians 4.16. In fact, it is speculated that Philemon was known to have come from this area. Sir William Ramsey, who was the famous archaeologist, actually found an inscription which was written to Laodicea which referred to a Marcus Cestius Philemon. And whether or not he was the same Philemon which, you know, has an epistle named after him in our New Testament, we don't know for sure. But it does indicate to us that in the area of Laodicea, Philemon was a common name. I mean, it was, you know, a last name. Like in this area, we have a lot of what? Coggins? Coggins and Coggin? (laughs) And who else? I know down where I live in in Carthage, there's a lot of fries, F-R- Y-E and F-R-Ys, right? So there was a lot of Philemons in Laodicea. Evidently, from the time when Paul wrote Colossians to the time that the Lord Jesus wrote his little letter to the Laodiceans, which was about 30 years later, in, in between that time, the church had gone sour. Whatever true believers had been there, and there were some because Paul says to say hello to, you know, these people in Colossians' letter. Whatever true believers were there 30 years earlier had either died off or they had moved away because the Lord Jesus in his revelation letter mentions nothing good at all about the church. We have seen that even in Thyatira, where Jezebel and her followers had led so many of the church people into compromise and into idolatry and into immorality, there were still some, right? There were some who had shown love and who had held true to the faith. And even in Sardis, which was the spiritually dead church, the church that even the living ones were about to die. Even, even there, there were some who weren't dead yet and hadn't defiled their garments. But to the Laodicean church, the Lord Jesus has not one good word to say about anyone or about anything. Whatever wheat must have existed there at one time had obviously departed. Possibly the true overcomers of this church had left and had joined with believers in nearby Hierapolis or maybe with the believers over in Colossae. Or perhaps they began another church or joined with the one that was meeting in the house of Nymphus. It says in Colossians 4.15 that there was a church being held in this man's house. We do know that among the present-day ruins, again, of Laodicea, if you were to go there today, you would see the ruins of three churches that date back to the early days of Christianity, which is an interesting thing to speculate about. So maybe all the true overcomers left the apostate church and started their own church. Yet in spite of the wealth of the church of the Laodiceans, at least the one that this letter is written to, there is nothing known about its ministry. There's nothing known about its outreach, as we've learned was characteristic of the Ephesian church and of the Philadelphian church of that day. Laodicea definitely had the money to invest in missions. And yet, tragically, it appears that she didn't invest in anything other than things for her own self-glory. She probably had one of the most gorgeous buildings in the first century for a church building. Well, Laodicea parallels the seventh parable of Matthew 13, which is the parable of the dragnet. We've seen how this has been true with every one of the seven parables in Matthew 13, how it corresponds with the seven churches. This is uh, the parable where the Lord Jesus said again, The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers. But the bad they threw away. The bad they spewed out, you could say. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's pretty self-explanatory. 
I don't have time to get into that, but you know that the Lord said in this letter to the apostates, they are the bad fish, that he would spew them out of his mouth. They would go through the fiery furnace of the tribulation period. Well, the Laodicean stage of church history began around 1900, and it has been increasing in its intensity ever since. We've already discussed the events of history which precipitated this final stage of Christendom. But we must also remember that apart from Smyrna, the persecuted church, and apart from Philadelphia, the missionary church, the decline in the church has been going steadily downward. You know, back in um, the apostolic church of Ephesus, what began as a fall from first love went to a compromise with the world in practice, and that was represented by the Church of Pergamos, and then to a toleration of false doctrine, which we read about in the Church of Thyatira, and then to a spiritual deadness represented by Sardis, and then down, down, down to an outright apostasy, which we read about in this last letter. Actually, the characteristics of the Laodicean era can best be seen by an examination of what the Lord Jesus Christ has to say to this church. And he began his message by using three titles which uh, describe his nature and his person to this church. And it's with this that we'll close uh, the description of Christ. This is the third part of our outline. In these three significant titles for himself, which he gives in verse 14, the Lord Jesus called special attention to those attributes of himself which were particularly needing attention in the church of the Laodiceans. What does he call himself? The Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God. The first title that he used of himself here is that he is the Amen. Now, some people say Amen. I guess that's what I use most of the time. I I never have been very aware of it, but I think I mostly say Amen. And some people say Amen, right? And sometimes I say Amen. But the word in Hebrew is pronounced Amen. Everybody say that. Amen. That's how you would pronounce it in Hebrew. Amen has its root, the root of the word comes from Amuna, which means truthfulness. It also carries the idea of finality. The Lord was saying that he is the final truth. Okay, you put those two meanings together. He is the final truth. He is the final truth of all of God's revelations to man. If you want to know about God, who do you study? You study, like we did, you study the words and the works, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 65, 16, God calls himself, Jehovah God calls himself the God of truth or the God of Amuna, the God of the Amen. Now, because the Lord Jesus took this title, which definitely applied to Jehovah God, and he used it for himself, again, who is he saying he is? He's God, yes. Over and over and over and over again in the scripture, Jesus proclaims his deity. Now, the word amen is oftentimes, or amen, I should say, is often used in the scriptures, and it's translated in some cases as verily, you know, like when the Lord would say verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you. That's the word amen. And the word means that whatever is spoken before, like when we say a prayer, we end it with amen. Or whatever is spoken afterwards, like when the Lord said, verily, verily, I say unto you, and then whatever he would say. It means that whatever spoken before or afterwards is absolutely affirmed and guaranteed. It is truth. It, it's used at the end of a prayer to mean so be it. You know, just so be it, we could say. Now, we might ask ourselves, why would the Lord give himself this particular title when addressing the church of the Laodiceans? The reason is because he was stressing to them the fact that every promise of God made throughout the Old Testament was given the stamp of absolute truth and guarantee by himself, by his 
coming, his first coming. He is the amen, the amen. He is the so be it to every messianic prophecy God ever made. You know, it says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, For all the promises of God in him, meaning in Christ, are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. Christ became the yea, the yes, and the amen the final truth to all of the promises of God. And he is the guarantee that what God says is truly true. Truly true. This is a very important message for people in the apostate church, the false church, people living in our day and age, the people that are meeting in Chapel Hill and trying to figure out who Jesus is and saying, you know, he's just a good ethical teacher and that the word of God can't be trusted. This is exactly what people like this need to hear, that he is the final truth. He is the fulfillment of everything God has ever said. Because this is the, this is the church age which is denying the word of God and which is denying the person of Christ. Dr. John Wal- Walvoord says this. He says, quote, any observer of the theology of the contemporary church will recognize the drift which has been apparent in the 20th century. A large portion of the church no longer subscribes to the inerrancy of scripture, the eternity and the deity of Christ his substitutionary atonement, and his bodily return to the earth. These and other great doctrines of the faith have been rejected by the modern mind and replaced with a new theology. The present trend toward apostasy, according to the scripture, is only beginning and will have its ultimate form in the period after the church, the body of Christ, that's a true church, has been raptured. End of quote. It's amazing to me how man in his little puny, finite brain thinks that he knows more than an infinite, holy God. And how he can say what is truth and what isn't and pick and choose and say, well, this is true, this isn't. Just amazing to me how man wants to think he's smarter than God. Now, the second title the Lord used of himself in his salutation description of verse 14 is that he is the faithful and true witness which is really what the Hebrew word amen means. The Lord Jesus will not dilute the truth to make it more tolerant or to make it more palatable to the modern mind, nor will he distort the truth because he himself is truth and he cannot lie. He is purposely, you see, informing this church by these first two titles of himself that he is both faithful and true to the message that he received from his father just as he expects his church to be faithful and true to the message that they have received from him and that they have been entrusted to carry to the world. He designates himself to this first century lukewarm church uh, which symbolizes our liberal, lukewarm, increasingly apostate stage of church history because his com- condemnation against her is going to conflict with what she thinks of herself. She has a very high opinion of herself. She thinks she's wealthy and in need of nothing. And yet, what is he going to tell her? He's going to shock her. So she needs to know that what he, his assessment is the true and the faithful assessment. It is the amen. This is it. This is God's assessment. I don't care what you think of yourself. This is what I think, and I'm God, and my opinion is the only one that counts. Now, the third title the Lord Jesus found in verse, or that we find in verse 14, is that he is the beginning of the creation of God. Now, before anyone jumps to the wrong conclusion that this title indicates that Jesus Christ was the first created being of God. Now, some people will take this wrong and and misinterpret it. 
cults will use it and say, well, look, he wasn't God. He was just the first create, created being of God. That is not what it means. If we know what the Greek word for beginning is, it's the word arche. It means the first cause or the origin. So literally what this title is, is the, that he's saying he is the origin of the creation of God. And that's a direct Greek translation. So don't let anybody knock on your door and try to point this verse to you and say, look, he said it himself. He's the beginning of the creation of God. He's the first created being. He is saying here, no, I am the origin of the creation of God. That means he is the one who brought creation into existence. He is the beginning of the creation of God. And this, if you took it the other way, it would conflict with Scripture. And Scripture never contradicts Scripture because it was all written by the same author, that being God the Holy Spirit. In John 1.3, it says this about Christ, all things were made by him. And without him was not anything made that was made. And also Colossians 1.16, for by him, Christ, were all things created that are in heaven. Blah, 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 goes on, mentions everything. Now, why would the Lord refer to himself in this manner to the Laodicean church? Well, one reason may well be because this church boasted herself of her wealth and her independence. And so with this title, Christ was reminding her that if she had anything at all by way of possessions or wealth or a big beautiful building to boast about or fine black woolen clothing that they could parade in church with, or famous ISAV, or a nearby Hot Springs resort, which had brought all the wealthy people to their town so that they were a famous banking center. If they had any of these things, it was only because he, the creator of all things, had provided them with those things. Their wealth was nothing compared to his wealth. He owns it all. He is the originator of all creation. In fact, though, what had they done? He's the one who gave him, them everything, but we find that they had put him on the outside of their church. And so really, even though they thought they were wealthy, they were incredibly poor. They're the poorest church we've looked at. Poorer than Smyrna, the persecuted church. They were rich. Thought they were poor, but they were rich. This church thinks they're rich, but they are very poor because they don't even have Christ in their church. He's on the outside. They were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, and they didn't even know it. So in telling the church of the Laodiceans that he is the Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of the creation of God, the Lord was telling the apostate church who he is. And if there's anything they need to know today, it's who Jesus Christ is. He is very God of very gods. He is Lord and he is Savior. They had grown proud and arrogant and much like the Laodicean citizens who boastfully rebuilt their city without any help from Nero back in 62 AD, this Laodicean church was attempting to build their church without any help. You see the similarity? The citizens didn't want help from Nero to rebuild their city. This church doesn't want the Lord's help to build their church. We're proud. We're going to build our, this is our church. And, of course, he said, you're right. It is your church. It's the church of the Laodiceans. So this is why, this is the church where the people rule. This is the church where Christ is knocking on the outside. And this is why he reminds them in three very strong titles, by three strong titles, who he is. But we do need to remember that even though he's standing on the outside for the true church, which consists of true overcomers from all seven churches, where is the Lord standing? He's in the midst of those seven candlesticks. He's in the midst of his true church. He may be on the outside of the apostate church, but he's in the midst of you and I if we are truly born again. I am sorry to take you so long. But at least we got through our lesson, and we're going to wrap up the whole year's study, Lord willing, next week as we look at the rest of the letter to the Laodiceans. We have a special.